church. That was uh, Bob Leckel. Um, you, many of you guys heard Bob last week in the Haiti report. Um, we had Bob read out of the uh, sections out of Colossians chapter 1. Uh, and that's because we're going to be in a series called Palette. And Palette is all about a study that we're going through the whole book of Colossians and really honing in on the key relationships that Paul identifies. And the reason that we're in Colossians is, and, and actually while we're uh, while I'm just kind of introducing this, if you could go ahead and turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be in 15 through 23. But the reason that we're in Colossians to begin with is that all through last year, one of the things the staff, one of the things we were realizing is that time and time again, both the people that were coming to us and, and talking to us and the interactions and conversations we had with one another were focusing and revolving around the fact that, man, we just have some serious relationship issues going on. I mean, people throughout the time that, that uh, we've been at NBC, different people have just sought help and, and perspective, biblical counsel on, well, what do I do in this situation in this marriage? Or what do I do in this situation um, in, in, this, in this relationship with a kid? Or what do I do with this relationship with my parents? How am I supposed to interact with the people that are at my work or my employer? What about the people that I know that I'm pretty tight with? but they're far from God. How do I interact with them? And so it was like, we really, when we get into 2015, we want to have a series that we hone in on relationships. And as we were reading through the Bible in 90 days, when we got to Colossians, it was like, bam, bam, bam. Paul just flags each one of these interactions, each one of these relationships through the filter of Jesus and through the filter of the impact of the gospel. So like, we are going to totally do that one. We got to be in, in Colossians. And, um, and unfortunately, we're so far removed as a people from what the, the city of Colossae or anything about it that it, it sometimes just seems like a really weird place. We, we forget about the fact that, that this actually was a location on the map. And if you look uh, at the map right now, you have the Mediterranean Sea right there, and you see kind of uh, just the southern Europe area into the Asian area right there. And if you look up there, you, you see kind of a familiar one with Ephesus. You know, we, we've heard that. Um, that's a, a pretty famous city, as well as the place that Paul wrote the letter to the church uh, in Ephesus called Ephesians. And Colossae is, is not too far off. Now, the, the root of where the, the book of Colossians, which is actually a letter written by Paul, the root of that is it comes from this church that Paul m more than likely never visited. It's a church that he may have never, ever set foot on. He never planted this church. But the fact that, he, that, this, that, that, that there was impact there, that it was actual church that he's writing to, is evidenced in the fact that there's this guy named Epaphras who was from Colossae. And Epaphras goes on over and he hears the gospel message. He hears the truth about Jesus in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, all of a sudden, he's like, man, this, this reality has absolutely changed my whole world. And so he goes back home and he tells everyone back home all about this Jesus. And whenever the gospel is presented, like, in honesty and clarity, stuff happens. God does something there. Some, some type of impact happens. Toxic, toxicity stops um, and health starts to grow. The gospel has... has just net result. The Lord does work in that. And so in Colossae, all of a sudden, things start to get cooking. And this church starts to surface. And as the church surfaces, all of a sudden, things are starting to grow. And we know that good things were happening there because Paul was like saying, you guys, there's some great stuff happening. I'm, we, we, we're so thankful for you. We're so grateful that, that the gospel is being proclaimed in Colossae. But that's not why he's writing the letter. He's writing the letter because Epaphras has gotten back to him while he was in in prison about the fact that there's some stuff going down in Colossae that's not cool. There's some things being taught uh, that are actually starting to disrupt and break apart the church. 
Now, these people weren't like fighting with one another about like um, carpet color or traditional or, or, or contemporary music. That's not, wasn't their deal. There was this teaching about Jesus that was infiltrating the church. And people used to think that it was Gnosticism, but it's more likely not Gnosticism, but this kind of like Jewish folklore. It's kind of like one part Judaism and one part kind of New Ageism that was fusing together where people were like, listen, I think Jesus is great, but it's not like he's really God. And Jesus is awesome, but it's not like I'm really going to pray to him because if I really need help, the person I'm going to pray to is an angel because angels can intervene the way that no one else can. Jesus was an awesome app to their life, but he wasn't the center figure. And so Paul wanted to bolster the church's confidence. And he didn't bolster the church's confidence by telling them how wonderful and how awesome they were. That wasn't how he led in. He starts off with talking about how amazing and wonderful and awesome Jesus is. He's like, if, if you want to be confident, if you want to have a confidence, I got to tell you first and foremost about who Jesus is. And if you got a glimpse of that, if you really sunk your teeth into who Jesus was, then that would impact all the rest of this. And so he starts off there. And what we're going to talk about today is really kind of the foundation for this entire series. The whole series really hangs on the person of Jesus, how amazing Jesus is, how he's our foundation, how he's better than any other foundation that we could possibly have. And so we're going to break that into three sections of, of betters. Jesus is better. And, and things that Paul's really conveying through these first couple of verses. Let's take a look at the first uh, section there in 15 through 19. Now, again, we have to take just a step back. Who's writing this letter? Paul, all right? And this is, this, he's writing this letter about 30 years after Jesus died on the cross and rose again. So he's been walking in the faith for about 30 years. You know, before that, was he a fan of Jesus? No. <laughs> he was not a fan of Jesus. He was, he was perfectly uh, happy the fact that, that he was a part of making sure that Christianity as a movement became extinguished. He was not a fan of Christians. But then he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, everything changes. But he's talking 30 years after that. And that sounds like a long time, but it's, it's a short enough period of time that the bold claims he's making about Jesus that we're about to read could be fact-checked. Okay? If I told you, for example, you may not know this, but in 1985, an amazing Oscar-winning movie came out. The acting was superb. Every single actor received an Academy Award. It was such an epic love story that to this day, people are, are gleaning from the legacy of this movie. The movie was Back to the Future. <laughs> and it got best score, best, uh, best film, best lead actor, best support. It was, it was, it, it just, it was a shoo-in at the Oscars. You, those of you who were alive back in 85, could say, no. <laughs> I was, the movie's great, but it was no Academy Award-winning flick. Similar to this, if Jesus wasn't what Paul was saying he was, people could say, look, Jesus is great. I, I, again, I love the guy. I love his teachings. He did some wonderful things, but I can fact check the fact that what you're saying is not true. So what he's saying here is 30 years out, and he's making bold statements on purpose with an exclamation point. Look at verse 15. Talking about Jesus, he says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. I mean, that right there. Not only did Jesus create everything, but it's all created for him. He, he keeps on coming out. It was done by him, through him, and for him. Verse 17, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning 
and the firstborn among the dead, so that everything might have the supremacy. For God was pleased, verse 19, to have all of his fullness dwell in him. Okay, so massive, just, this is the cannonball in, in a placid pool that's making everyone go, whoa, okay, you're really hitting this out of the park to say that this is something that huge. You could have, you could have led in with that Jesus was really significant, maybe more significant than we're giving him allowance for, but you're actually going higher than that. You're actually taking this to the next step. And then, let's just go ahead and unpack some of the things that he was talking about. First off, uh, he says in verse 15, he makes the point that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's not like God. He's not, he's not God-like or God-ish. He's not someone with a lot of cool attributes of God. He is God in the flesh. And he could end the argument on that one, but he didn't. He keeps on going. Not only that, Jesus is before everything and outranks everybody. He says at the end of verse 15, God is the first, uh, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. And by firstborn, he's not saying he was actually the first creation of God the Father. What he's saying instead is that he's using a cultural understanding of what firstborn meant. How many of you in here are firstborn? You're the firstborn kid. Booyah. Okay, hands, I'm going to have you guys raise your hands in just a sec, but hands down. How many of you are like everybody else? I'm so sorry for all of you people. Because all of us firstborns, we know we are firstborn. All right, now, even though you were probably the guinea pig of the family and mom and dad made most of their mistakes on you, being firstborn back in this culture was massively important. I mean, it was epic. If you were the firstborn son in a family, you were the representation for dad and the land that dad owned. If dad had to go out of town, you were the one who was in charge, not mom. If dad had to do a business deal, he couldn't make the business deal. He would send his son to make that business deal. Why? Because the firstborn is the representation of the father and represents all the land the father owns. And so when Paul is saying Jesus is firstborn over all creation, he's saying all the land of creation, the whole universe, guess whose that is? It's the father's. But Jesus is superior. He is the one who, who is representation, the representation of the father for it. He's the one who reps the father for it. He's the one who, who's, if you want to see God, you look to Jesus. If you want to know, understand God, you listen to Jesus. If you want to understand everything that the prophets said in the Old Testament, Jesus is the filter. It's saying that Jesus is before, by the firstborn of creation, he's before all of us. He's before you and your mom. He's before everybody. And he outranks everybody. He's that important. He is the representation of the Father. And so Paul is talking about the importance of him in that verse. He jumps on down to verse 17 and saying in verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the very glue of creative history. If you're here today, you're here today because Jesus has held you together. He's held you together against the uphill climb of all of the breaking down that sin does in our body in this planet. All of us are breaking apart. All of us are slowly, we're slowly going. The only thing holding us together is Jesus. He keeps the whole cosmos becoming, by being a cosmos rather than slipping into chaos. That's Jesus. You're here today not because you have an amazing diet or you P90X or Zumba or rub oils on the back of your neck. You're here, you're here today because Jesus holds all things together. And that's the, that's the beauty of science, is that the deeper and deeper scientists get into science, the more they're like, this is even more amazing than I thought. Like, we used to think DNA was this, but now it's even far more complex. This is a language code. 
it's almost like someone had to write this. It's almost as if someone programmed this. We just don't know who. And at the end of their question mark is a name. And the name and the answer to all these questions is Jesus. He's the one who holds it all together. He's the one who created it. It was created by him, through him, for him. That's all Jesus. He is the very glue of creative history. 18, he goes on to say that Jesus is the leader of the church. And this is good news, isn't it? Because throughout history, what we've done is we've tried to make other people the leader of the church. And the leader of the church is not a pastor or a priest or a pope. None of these people can be the head of the church. John Calvin said that if you make, a, it's, he used the word August, it's August. It's like, it's, it's outrageously atrocious to make the head of the church any person other than Christ, especially since Christ didn't do that. Now, to the people that Paul's writing to, they're like, well, hold on a sec. You're kind of the head of the church. If you actually came to Colossae, which would be nice, Paul, like we would totally like, we'd have you sign an autograph. So you'd have a merch table in the back with a t-shirt. We would, you, you're amazing. And Paul would say, no, I am not the head of the church. Well, yeah, okay, Peter, Peter's kind of the head of the church. You know, Jesus said on this rock, you know, I'm going to build my church. And so Peter's kind of like the head. No, Peter's got issues. Have you read my stuff that I've told you about Peter? Peter's working through the same stuff that you and I are working through. He's the same need of Jesus that you and I have. No, there's, Peter's not the head. I, Paul, not the head. None of your leaders in your church are the head. Jesus is the head. How many times have we had people in the church that have disappointed us, whether it's been a pastor or a priest or, or what the Pope does or whatever, and you're like, oh man, it's, I, I, just, I don't even know if I can have faith anymore because of these stinking Christians. Paul would say, I totally agree, but our faith isn't in those guys. Those guys will disappoint us. Jesus won't, which of course brings us to Titanic. <laughs> you guys remember the end of Titanic? Um, spoiler alert, at the end of the Titanic, the ship, it, it sinks, but... At the end of it, when the ship is sinking, you've got, you've got this little, like, pallet-sized raft that Rose is on, totally hogging the whole thing to herself. And in the water is who? Jack. And she's holding on to him, and he's holding on, he's freezing, and she's like, and what does she say to him? Never let go, Jack. Don't let go. Don't let go. And then what does she do? I'm like, this is a love story? I, I remember the first time I was in the theater watching, I'm like, you could have at least held on to the dead body just to say, well, I, I kept a promise, you know? But I mean, for crying out loud, I never understood that. But that is the church sometimes. We are on the, the foundation, this amazing foundation of Jesus, this amazing grounding of who he is. And we're holding on to people inside the church and outside of the church. We're like, hey, I got you. I got you. I'm here for you. I'm, I'm with you. And for a lot of the time, they are. But sometimes as church, this church and the church in general, the, the, the global church, we either hog the thing to ourselves or we let go of the people we're supposed to be reaching. And that would lead anyone to lose faith if our foundation were the leadership or the people of the church. And it's not. It's Jesus. Amen? And so this is, I mean, so this is the understanding we need to understand. He's making the point that Jesus is the head. Now, when we say that, that, that Jesus is a better grounding, if, if someone is grounded, that means that they've got a foundation that's solid, right? And that this is a, a solid foundation. 
That there's someone who, who's got wisdom. That if someone is grounded, that's from which they think. I've got grounded thinking. I'm not, I'm not, just, I'm not all over the place. I'm not, I'm not impulsive. I'm grounded. And what we try to do is we try to make that place anything but Jesus. And what Paul's saying, Jesus is a better grounding than anything you could possibly have. What's this? All right, a box. Good job. What is this? Stare? Oh, a chair. Good job, Mason. It's a chair or a... There you go. What's this? Okay. And what do all of these things have in common? These are all items that people in my house have used to stand on. In fact, I mean, like with the, with the stool, like I've come down into my house, or down to the, the first floor of my house, and I'm waking up, and one of my kids is doing this, trying to get a, a box of life cereal. And I walk down, and I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, what? <laughs> now, why is this a bad idea? Because this is not something you should, st- a swivel stool is not something that you should stand it's not a foundation this is not something that you should stand on all these things have been stood on and have and some of them have led to hospital visits hopefully not now okay now what we do as a church is this as as people of god the church in Colossae, what they oftentimes would do is this you know what um the relationships in my life like with my spouse, with my boyfriend, my girlfriend, with my friends, um, what they think of me. And this is really, honestly, this is my foundation. This is what I stand on. And it works until it doesn't. A lot of times we're like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I mean, really my life is about my spouse or my, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, or the people that are around me that I, that I look at as friendships. And Jesus is good. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. But really, this is my foundation. We're not grounded. Or sometimes people are like, you know what, it's really, it's kind of my success, how good I'm doing in school, how, I'm, how good I'm doing with, with the people that I work with. Whether or not my boss acknowledges the hard work that I'm doing or not, that's my foundation. And I love Jesus too. I love Jesus too. I really do. But this is really my foundation. And that works until it doesn't. Or, and this is my son Carson McFadden. Carson, that is not something to stand on. But it's fun. No, it's not fun. my happiness. Honestly, my happiness is my foundation. And, then, and, and I, I'm going to stand on that as long as I possibly can. And I love Jesus, especially when Jesus makes me happy. This is not a foundation. And what we end up doing is we end up having awful, awful falls where we start to suddenly doubt and question everything about the God that we love, saying, if you were so good, then why, why did this fail? And the reason that this failed is because, in part... <coughs> We were trying to make something foundational that's not foundational. It's good, but it's not foundational. See, the truth is, is that what Paul presents instead is a different perspective. He says, you know, actually, none of those things are foundational. Jesus is foundational. He's kind of like one of these things, a pallet. These are designed to hold weight. They're designed to be a foundation that can actually support a lot of stuff. In fact, when when you see these things, what what they always are 
used for is stacking stuff on top of them. So what Paul is saying is that Jesus is this in our life. And so that our relationships with our spouse or our boyfriend or our girlfriend or the people around us, it goes on top of this foundation because this foundation can hold up that. The, the way that we have with our employees, it goes on top of this foundation. Why? Because this foundation can hold that. All these things are stacked on top of this because Jesus is the one, the only one, the only one that could possibly hold that all up. Now, what Paul is saying is that Jesus is a better grounding, which is true. But he makes a huge point about how powerful God is, which should send any one of us into a place of going, he's so powerful, he's so holy, he's distant, he's out here. I can't get close to him because I know how dirty I am or I know how messed up or fragile I am. And so Paul uses a word, and this is not the word that he uses to talk about what he's praying for for the church, how there are to get to know him. He says, I pray that you gnose, he doesn't say, I pray that you gnosis Jesus. Gnosis is, is the word for wisdom or knowledge. Like, like I, I pray that you know Jesus. He, doesn't, he does not pray that people know Jesus like that. Chapter 1 doesn't say that. Chapter 1 says that he prays that they epigenosis Jesus. And there's a big difference between knowledge, knowing something, and epigenosis, which is relational knowing. I don't know, this hasn't been really reported on in the news, but there's this thing where there's an NFL team that deflated a couple of footballs. It's really not out there that much because it's, it's not that huge of a deal, but it just, and it's, it's such a shock because the team that ha- this happened to is of such high integrity too. It's crazy. But apparently what happened was somebody deflated 10 out of 12 footballs in a game from 12.5 PSI down to something lower than that, which is just, I mean, it's, uh, how could they do that? Now, I've heard about this story because I watch Good Morning America news. Now, I gnosis that story. I know about the fact that this took place with the Patriots. I know about what Brady said about it. I know I, know, I gnosis that. But there's only one person who epigenosis that story. The dude with the needle. The dude with the needle epigenosis this. He has relational knowledge about that. That's what Paul's praying. This guy says this, epigenosis and gnosis differ. Epigenosis is the complete comprehension after the first knowledge of a matter. It's bringing me better acquainted with a thing I knew before, a more exact viewing of an object than I saw before afar off. Think um, in Star Wars, the Millennium Falcon approaching this thing that looked like a small moon. Was it a small moon? No, what was it? The Death Star. And the closer you got to it, the more of a reality of how the magnitude of what that is. Uh, so let's read that again. A more exact viewing of an object that I saw before afar off, that little portion of knowledge which we had here shall be much improved. Our eyes shall be raised to see the things more strongly and clearly. When he's saying this, he's saying that you need to understand that the whole purpose is for that you have Jesus not only as a better grounding, but that you have a relationship with where he's actually the center. He is also a better centering the only way that this massively powerful God become, could become accessible was through the incarnation and through what Jesus did on the cross. And then when that took place, something happened. A centering effect happened. Now, you're going to hear, if, you, if, you have any, if you've been in yoga or you've, done, you've had any experience with New Age stuff or you visited California a lot, you're going to hear people use a term called, like, I'm just trying to find my center. I'm just trying to center myself. Hold on. Got to breathe. Everything's crazy out here. Crazy but I'm going to center myself. Because if I center, I go inside, inside, inside to a place that's good and quiet and peaceful. There's a problem with that. The center's messed up. 
And the deeper I mine in, the more that's a reality. And I can confuse myself or, or believe that inside it's all perfect. But the reality is inside is deep and dark. There's only one thing that could happen to overturn that, and that's what Jesus did. Look at verse uh, 20 and following. And through him, what Jesus did, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace. How did he do it? Through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You were guilty. He gave you his righteousness. You were far off. He gave you his proximity. This massive, powerful, holy God, the reason Paul is not saying all this stuff about Jesus, how powerful it is, is to make us go distant. He's made, allowing us to see how distant we should be, but that he didn't do that. He doesn't want us simply to know about how awesome he is. He wants us to have the relationship with him so we see how close he became. That's something that we have to sink our teeth into. And so when we come to our center, as a person, I need to be honest that at my center, let's just say this represents my center, at my center, there's times where I have a short fuse. If I get quiet, breathe it in, breathe it in, I'm just getting coming to my center. I realize that at my center, I am at a point of being absolutely lack of patience with people. Now, if I come to my center, I can say there's reason for that. There's a reason why I, 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 I got a short fuse. This person is just ticking me off, man. And they keep doing it over and over and over again. And so if I come to my center, I'm justified in that. Now, if I, that's my, if I am my center, I can justify any short fuse. But I am not my center. Jesus is. Because I'm a follower of Jesus. And when the gospel took root in my heart, he starts to change out the me that's far off from him and trades it out with Jesus. And all of a sudden, I'm reminded that Second Peter says that God is not he's not slow in the way that we think of slowness. He's actually patient with us. There's a patience about him. If I go deep down to my core and I'm just centering on myself, I can realize that there's hate there, total disdain for people that the people will never know about because when I'm looking at them, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm doing everything I can to not to non-verbally communicate or verbally communicate how much I can't stand them. No, no one in this service. <laughs> not, next service. No, just kidding. But, but, but you know what I'm talking about? How easy it is for us to have this facade up. And I could say at my center, I'm justified. Do you know what they did? Do you know what they said? If I'm at my center, I can totally justify that. And then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm wondering why the doctors are saying, you need to do anything you can just to take it down a notch, dude. Your stress levels, your, your blood pressure, what's stressing you out so much? I don't know. I'm at the center. When I'm at the center, I allow toxicity to breathe that Jesus never created me for. Instead, I recognize that Jesus trades it out, and instead he has love and prayer. He says, you know what? You guys always say to love the people who love you, but what's the big deal with that? Instead, I say, love those who hate you and pray for the people who want to attack you, to which anyone with a mind would say, Jesus, I can't do that, to which he would respond, I know. That's my work in you. That's you allowing the, the you that's far off from me to be traded out with me. And then all of a sudden you get to see that just as much as being grounded is a place that I'm thinking from, being centered is a place that I act from, and you're, you're not the center, it's me. If I go down deep into the core of my being, I can recognize that, that probably from junior high on, most of us had this idea of being popular or accepted. We wanted to be someone who was powerful even, that kind of came later on. And the whole wanting to be in control started when we were zero has been perpetuating all the way through. 
And the truth is, is that all those things are at my core. I keep defaulting back to them, but there's a different work at play, the work that Jesus has done through the cross. And he said that greatness doesn't come from being popular, powerful, or in control. And he manifested that, and he showcased that, and we hear that in Philippians 2, and even in Matthew 20, when he says, if you want to be great, you serve those around you. That's, how, that's me working through you. That's not you being a nice guy. That's me working through you. That's me as your center, because I am a better center. If you look back in Colossians chapter 1 at um, verse 13, it says this, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us to the, into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in which, or in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. The word for brought there is a really cool Greek word that in the context of what Paul's talking about, it's this word of actually going into, like a king going into a dark dominion, like a, a kingdom where there's oppression and pain and toxicity, and all these people are slaves. And so what the king does is he comes in and he liberates them. He liberates the slaves, and he doesn't just liberate them, get to the edge of town and say, all right, peace, see you later, take off, get out of here, get out of here, go. He actually takes them, he takes all the slaves out of the dominion of toxicity and darkness and, in, and brokenness, and he brings them into a new kingdom. And he says, I'm going to teach you how to be citizens and participants in a new kingdom that is of health, that is of me, that is of light. That word for brought that he's using, he's using it in that context. The work of Jesus is to take us from the dark dominion of toxicity and to bring us into a different place where he is at our center, where he is working where he actually is not only a better center, but also a better launching pad. And if a better grounding is, is, is a better place which Jesus is our foundation to think from, and a better centering is a better place to act from, the uh, launching pad is the reality that when Jesus saves us, it's a better place to, to go out of here from, to actually let this be something that manifests outside of this place. If you look at, at verse 23, let's jump up to 22 for context. Listen to what he says. But now he has, talking about Jesus, reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Let's just pause there for a sec. What, you know, that, that phrase right there, if you continue in your faith, to me, on, at first glance, feels like he's saying, listen, salvation is for you if you continue in your faith and you keep working and keep on showcasing it. If you stop, it's pitched. And he's not saying that. Paul's actually communicating an amazing amount of confidence in the people who are receiving this letter, saying, listen, those of you that this gospel took root in, it continues. That which God started in you, he's going to complete. And so your participation with that work is evidence that you are continuing in your faith. And I'm, I'm giving you the confidence that this is not on you, it's on his work in you to see that happen. This is active. It's not something that you, that you simply believe. You check a, a checkbox, I'm a Christian. It's something, it's not a prayer that you pray and then you walk away. And again, you know, I'm just glad that one day, whenever I die, I'm going to be in heaven and not hell. Jesus is taking us out of this place and bringing us into a kingdom that is here and starts here. Uh, Pastor Brent and I were at a conference and uh, one of the speakers was talking about a show. I've never seen this show, but it's uh, called Chasing Classic Cars. Any of you seen that show? It's with Wayne Carini. Um, but anyway, the show is, is this, this, this whole thing is around this guy, Wayne Carini, who goes all around the country trying to find uh, classic cars that have been like stowed away in people's, uh, you know, gar garages and never really ridden, but, but amazingly valuable vehicles. 
And he, gets, he, he finds out that there's a 1960 Impala. And, and, and he finds out that it only has like 22,002 miles. Which is, and, and everything is original. Everything in this Impala is perfect. And so he's like, I got to see this. And so he goes and he finds the lady. The husband's passed away. And, and, he, and he's talking to the lady and saying, oh man, tell me about this car. And this is impeccable. Everything in it is exact. You didn't replace anything? Not a thing. We bought this in 1982 and it only had 22,000 miles. And he says, oh, you mean 22,002 miles, right? No, 22,000 miles. We only, we only drove two miles in it. He's like, wait, hold on, what? Yeah, my husband, he really wanted to make sure that this stayed, you know, perfect and mint. And so he built this shed around it and he climate controlled it so that dust wouldn't get in it and it, would, it wouldn't age. And, 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 and we just never drove. In fact, the two miles was just getting it from the place we purchased it from. You have a 1960 Impala that you have not driven. You guys never took it out. Well, sometimes we, we, we would open the garage door and we'd sit in the front seat together on the bench seat. And we'd let the wind just come into the garage and blow through our hairs. And we would think about what it was like, what it would be like if we were actually driving down the road, saying hi to people. And, and it was so sad. And Wayne Carini said, okay, two things. First, I'm buying this vehicle. Second, I'm taking you for a drive in it. He was allowing her to have epigenosis knowledge of this vehicle that she never knew before because all she had was a knowledge of it. She didn't know what it was really like to drive in it. And you know what? That too often is us as the church. We think that this is the main event. We show up here and we sit in the, in the, in, in the front seat and we listen to the amazing reality that, that's from God's word and we, we worship and we, we love it. It's true. It is so true. But it's knowledge. It's simply gnosis and nothing more if that's all it is. If we walk out of here and we just, nothing's changed. But it's cool. Nothing's changed because, because next week we're going to open up the garage door again. We're going to sit down and just enjoy the beauty and the wonder that is this vehicle that is mint condition, but it's never seen any real action on the road. The faith that God's called us into is one that is active, that it's transformative, and it starts in here, but it launches out. Today, you're going to hear the testimony and the stories of people who are being baptized. And the reason that they're baptized is not because there's something that saves you in baptism. As we've said every single time, this is Manuka Tap. There's nothing special about Manuka Tap. Not a thing. But there's something amazing that happens when a person says, Jesus died for me. He gave his life for me. That took place. And this is a, a, I'm proclaiming what he did, proclaiming that he's forgiven my sins. And I am taking this vehicle he's given me on the road. Everyone's going to hear about it. I'm not keeping it in one more day more. Amen? Let that be our story as we go through Colossians. And when you see people get baptized, let's... Let's just let, just let it rip as far as the amount of what a celebration that we're hearing happen, take place here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for the fact that you are our salvation, that our salvation is not built and based on anyone but you, but instead, instead of the whole thing that we've tried to make it, Lord, sometimes where we try to make the most important person in the room, the most uh, powerful person in our life, a foundation that is a, a person or a people group, a job, maybe a fear, a marriage, a divorce, something that brings us so much joy, something that brings us so much pain. Lord, sometimes we've made these things our foundation that all of our life is lived off of and they are not foundational. Jesus, you are the only foundation in our life. 
Lord, I pray that you help each one of us take steps of following your lead, letting you absolutely transform us. And as that happens, God, we will give you the thanks and the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take a look at these stories.